Hi, I'm Joe, and this is the Decahedron RPG Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Joe. This is episode number 108. This is the last episode of 2023. And originally this was going to be like a bonus episode. It wasn't going to have anything to do with gaming. Valerie and I were going to sit down. We were going to go over the list of movies that we had watched in 2023 at the movie theater. But the last month or so has been hectic. Valerie's mom has been in and out of the hospital uh, three times. So she's been spending a lot of time uh, there and at her mom's when her mom's not in the hospital. So finding the time to do that just didn't work out. But fortunately, the episode I aired last week that I recorded with Daniel went long and I chopped some of it out and I said, well, maybe it will be in a future episode. This is that episode. This is the episode where we are going to go into the nuts and bolts of shirts and skirts. Like we said last episode, it is a Star Trek RPG. It's very rules light. It's very beer and pretzels. It is not, it's very narrative, not tactical at all. Well, you know, minimally stickly. I guess the part that got cut out somewhere along the line is the inspiration was, I had been watching a lot of Star Trek, that part's in there, Got me thinking about running a Star Trek game. And so I have the Heritage Models Star Trek. I have the Last Unicorn Games edition of the Star Trek role-playing game. And, you know, when you look at those, like just one example, um, engineering, right? If you are an engineer in those games, well, not the Heritage ones, but the Heritage has its own problems. Maybe I should do a review of that one one day. Anyway, um, yeah, when you look at it, you know, say you want to make an engineer. So you would take like warp engineering and impulse engineering and thruster engineering. And, you know, they, they have it broken down into all these subtasks. And that just doesn't feel like Star Trek to me. I mean, when did you ever hear Scotty say, I, I Captain, I, I cannot do it. I'm a warp engineer, not a impulse engineer, right? No, he wears the red shirt. And he goes and he does it. And in the red shirt, by the way, that's where the name comes from. We talked about it a little bit in the last episode, but shirts and skirts, because shirts is, or your skirt, you know, the color, that is your class. You know, your red shirt is your class, or your yellow shirt is your class, or your blue shirt is your class. And then your subclass then is going to be, you know, engineer or security, communications, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, if, if you wear the right color shirt, you can perform in those tasks, uh, even if it isn't in your specialty. Anyway, you'll hear all that in a minute. So, yeah, again, uh, I'm joined with Daniel from The Bandit's Keep. I will put a link to his podcast and his YouTube channel and his drive through RPG stuff in uh, my show notes. And uh, like I said, this is a continuation of uh, last week's episode 107. Uh, this is just the game. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. So let's get into the game. Uh, I actually have a slide deck that I'm going to do here to talk about the game. And believe it or not, there are 42 slides. So I'm going to talk quickly. 
Uh, Shirts and Skirts is a star, uh, beer and pretzels game on the last frontier. I did not say final frontier because this is all written to avoid me being sued. And last frontier actually comes from this quote, which I believe that space is the last frontier man. It's the last place for man to conquer. It is the greatest adventure of all time. And I want to be part of that adventure. And that was spoken by Robert Manning, who is a cadet. But this wasn't on Star Trek. This was actually on a different show called Tom Corbett Space Cadet. And this is from one of the novels. And this was the 50s. The novels are in public domain, so I could freely use that. All right. So I already talked about how it's a class slash super class system. You could also think of it as a very broad skill-based system. But we'll see that in a second. Uh, it's the assumption that characters are highly competent. Usually in a role-playing game, you start off with those low-level characters that are very incompetent and they grow to competence. But when you watch Star Trek, all those crew members can do everything. It, it boggles my mind. So I'm trying to capture the feeling of the show. So all the characters are highly competent. There's only one attribute score for the characters. Like I said, I love rules-like games. This is a bread, uh, beer and pretzels game. Only one attribute score in the vein of Guardians of Order's tri-stat system. I guess you could say that this was the unistat system. You thought I was going to say monostat, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a joke that was used on Fear of the Boot years ago. But yeah, only one attribute score. The only other game I ever saw that did that was Extreme Mastery by Tracy Hickman. But that's neither here nor there. Tasks that are resolved using a dice pool and all die rolls are player facing. Because uh, I like all those things. Well, actually, this is the first time I've ever written something with a dice pool because I normally avoid them. But we'll get there when we get there. Character creation. We already went through this. Uh, you pick if you're a shirt or a skirt. You pick your color or your specialty. Actually, what a more normal person would do was just pick your specialty, which are going to be command, helm, and uh, in the later shows, they called it tactical. I called it ship's weapons. And in the original series, it kind of bounces between, is that Sulu that does it? Or is it Chekhov? And it, it kind of bounces between the two, depending on the episode. The first show was not known for its continuity at all. <laughs> but those are your gold shirts. If you're communications, engineering, security, those are your red shirts. Uh, although in the first pilot or two, Michelle Nichols wore gold instead of red. So I think a lot of the colors in the beginning, also talking about continuity, didn't have so much to do with what department you were in, but what color that particular actor looked the best in. And then the rest was written around that. <laughs> <laughs> and did you choose science or medical? That's blue. And then your GM will tell you what rank you are because you might want to run a high-level campaign. Everyone's going to be like commanders, or you might want to run a a very low-level game, and everyone's going to be ensigns or anywhere in between there. And then, of course, as with it's a role-playing game, so add your finishing touches, make your name, your background, and all that fun stuff. Nice and simple. I like it. Uh, so the ranks, because we said you have to pick your rank, and the rank is your only stat. So the ranks are uh, ensign, junior lieutenant, lieutenant, lieutenant commander, and commander. Uh, if you want to use them, I also have crewman, petty officer, and chief. Uh, crewman is pretty much the same as an ensign. You know, they're, they're your people that are new to Starfleet. It doesn't make a difference if you're an officer or enlisted. If you're clueless, you're clueless. Junior lieutenant, you know, you're starting to know what you're doing. That's your petty officer, uh, same, same. And your chief and your lieutenant are the same. Uh, and pretty much I just have them ranked and rank um, 
order. So ensigns are one, commanders are five, and it just follows through there. Speaking of officer enlisted, some argue that the enlisted officer divide is a vestige of historical class distinctions, and that is incongruent with the Star Flotilla's vision of an egalitarian utopia. I say Star Flotilla because, again, I don't want to be sued. Uh, Starfleet is a registered trademark. Star Flotilla is not. <laughs> In the original series, we almost never see anyone who is enlisted. So it's safe for me to assume that we move past that. Roddenberry didn't want there to be any enlisted. He thought they should all, you know, that we should have moved beyond that. Once we get into the movies, we start seeing some here and there. And every so often they pop up in Next Generation Beyond. But in my world, I'm saying they don't exist. But if you wanted them, I put them up there in the rank system. So there you go. Uh, Junior lieutenants. Okay, so... People who are hardcore Trekkers will point out that there is no such thing as a junior lieutenant in that show that I will probably stop mentioning because I don't want to get sued. There was a rank called Lieutenant JG or Lieutenant Junior Grade, but again, that does not exist on the original series. And you look at all the ranking signia, there is no place for that rank to be. Now, in this earlier show of Strange New Worlds, there is a Lieutenant JG, and in later shows... There is Lieutenant JG, but in the original series, there was not. So if this bothers you, just treat junior lieutenant as just like it says, it is a junior lieutenant. It's not a separate rank. He's still a lieutenant in world just for game mechanic purposes. We're considering it a junior lieutenant. Makes sense. Also, you'll notice I didn't have a captain, and that is intentional because, you know, I envision the game being played where all the players are on a team to do a mission or whatever, and it would be weird if they were all captains. And it would be weird to have one of them being the captain and everyone else having to just do whatever the captain says. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was going to actually bring that up or ask you about that because I've played, like, for instance, Delta Green. I played where we were a military unit, and it was a little bit weird because... We were an infantry unit, army infantry, and, uh, you know, most of the people playing had no military background, and it was funny how people of different ranks were, you know, people that were, like, privates or whatever were, like, telling, you know, higher-ranking people what to do, and it was just like, you know, and, and I don't know that it would have been fun otherwise, right? Because I think right. the person that was the highest-ranking person, they were, like, a, a sergeant or something, was had no experience with anything, and it was like, that just wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so good that, right, I think that making... It's so one rank actually, I'm air quoting it, outranks the other person is in charge might be difficult in the game unless you really come to agree with that. So it's cool that they're all kind of, a. I mean, yes, you have ranks, but they're not so I'm in charge, you follow me kind of thing. Yeah, like I said, I view it as a working team and a way team or whatever. And yeah, so there you go. Uh, but if you need one as an adversary, uh, the captain would be a six, uh, 60, I mean, yeah. Uh, rank number six, and he's always gold and he's always command because that's what a captain is. And if you want higher ranks, they would be fleet captain, commodore, and admiral. Fleet captain's only mentioned like twice in the original series, but it's mentioned, so there you go. <laughs> All right, the section about doing stuff. Task resolution, if you want to be formal. Tasks can either be opposed or unopposed, and they can be quick or extended. I think that's all standard RPG term. I don't need to explain what any of those are. Pretty much when you have a task to do, say you want to jam some communications, right? So that's a communications task. So that's communications, that's gold. But then you just determine how hard it is to do it. 
And so this would probably be an opposed task, right? So it's it's your communication officer versus your, your Uhura. Oh, you said you were Uhura. So it's you versus their communications officer. And you would just say, you know, on the Klingon ship, they have a lieutenant as their communications officer or junior lieutenant. And so we said before that junior lieutenant is rank number two. So that is your difficulty. That's it. Bam. Uh, if it's unopposed, you pretty much just go through the whole process. You just have to determine that difficulty based on how difficult of a task you would be. And that's pretty much um, if an ensign would have it like a 50-50 shot of doing it, it's an ensign task. If it's a lieutenant that would have a 50-50 shot of successfully doing it, it's a lieutenant task. If a commander would have a 50-50 shot, it's a commander task. It's that simple. Okay, so where does the dice pool come in? There you go. It's the next slide. So rolling the dice. <laughs> so the character starts with a number of dice and the dice pool equal to his rank. So let's say that you're, we'll, we'll go with it, you're a lieutenant communications officer. So lieutenant is a rank three. So you start with three dice. If the special key matches the task, add one dice. So we said we're jamming communications, you're a communications officer. So you get four dice instead of three. If... Neither the specialty nor the shirt color matches the task. Subtract one die. So if you're not a red, uh, yeah, because we said that communications was red shirt. If you're not a red shirt, if say you're a gold shirt, you would only get two dice. If you're a red shirt but not communications, say your security or your engineering, you would get three dice. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And again, that's that hyper level of, of competence. It's not really hyper competence, uh, but it is competence. But it is very competent characters, and everyone can do everything. It's just the further removed you are from the specialty, the less your chance. So for each die, you roll, I call it a binary die. If you get a success on any die, it explodes, and the number of successes meet or exceeds the difficulty level, the task succeeds. All this is done in such a way, I ran the math and everything to verify, but so if you are ranked two, you have a 50-50 shot of getting a score of two, except everything is slightly skewed in the player's favor on purpose, because again, it should feel like the show and they succeed. So, and so that's why if you're in your specialty, you actually have a better than 50-50 shot. The amount differs depending on your rank, but it's almost a two-thirds chance of making it. Binary die, because people are going to ask. A binary die is just a die where half the sides are zero and half the sides are one. Those are sold by Chessex. Those are easy to find. Those are easy to buy. Ideally, in my world, half of them would be blank and half of them would have, well, half of them would have the Star Trek logo on them, but I can't do that without getting sued. So half of them would just be marked. Uh, what I would do at home is I would just, just buy some blank dice. Again, Chessex sells blank dice. Mark half the sides, and you're done. Uh, roll those. Uh, if you don't want to do any of that, you can just use a normal D6 and count anything four or you know four or five or six as being a success. Or you can count like any odd number as being a success. The only reason I don't like that is because it's just going to take longer when you roll like five dice to go through. I don't know. This one's even. That one's odd. This one's even. That one's odd. Oh, and I forgot that the other uh, option I had in here was to buy like black D6, you know, with the pips and use a Sharpie to fill in all but the center dot on all the faces. And that will give you the same thing on the cheap. Oh, <laughs> that's a good idea, actually. 
Extended tasks. Yeah, so we now have our normal quick task, uh, which is maybe, I don't know, trying to get into this console, trying to uh, bypass somebody's security door on the door. You know, that's a standard thing they do a lot in Star Trek. Uh, other things are extended tasks. Maybe the warp drive has broken down and, you know, you're not going to do that in one turn. So in this case, you say the number of successes you need isn't three because we're going to make it a lieutenant task. It's going to be nine. And so all you do is every turn you roll and you count your successes and you keep, you know, the successes that you got. And when you hit nine, which will probably be three turns later, but it could be before it could be longer. You finally succeed at that task. And we do it that way. So you feel each turn that you're making progress towards that goal. People will point out that means that you will eventually always succeed at this task. Yes, you will. And that is intentional. Right. Well, I could see, though, uh, that you might not succeed in time, number one. Yep. Or as you're saying this, I'm thinking you could do a, a combination thing. You're trying to fix something and the enemy's doing something to you, right? Trying to stop you from fixing it. So they could be rolling opposed dice, knocking you out. So I, I could definitely see this being a back and forth and creating a lot of drama. If you did it that way, I don't know if that's part of the system, but that's how I immediately could see that happening, combining those two things, extended tasks plus opposed. Well, see, but opposed only sets the rank because, again, all the all the die rolls oh. are player facing. The GM yeah. never rolls any dice. Only the players do. Oh. And that way, the, the GM never fudges dice. But that's a topic for a whole different show. Still, I like it. I, I, I still <laughs> you, you might not get it done in time, even even with your your setup. Because that yes. could, it could be like, all right, you know what? They're they're closing in, and we have to fix our warp drive before they get to us. You know, they're going to be in five turns or whatever, and you got to keep rolling to get it until you know. The warp core's going to explode in four turns unless you can. Yep, definitely. So I added this bit in, and the more I think about it, I don't know if I'm going to keep it. Maybe I'll make it optional. But you know, maybe there's another. There's some weird task that doesn't fall under any duty position at all. I mean, the rules already take that into account. It's that that wouldn't be under your shirt or your color, so don't worry about it. But I'm thinking more about background things. Like maybe you want to say that your character plays three-dimensional chess. Mm -hmm. It's a very Star Trek thing. Although I would argue that that is actually a yellow slash command skill. And that is why Kirk always beats Spock at three-dimensional chess. But anyway, as an example, if you just want to say, you know, it's his hobby. He plays three-dimensional chess. He plays the Vulcan loot, whatever. Roll 3d6. If you're going to say that he's going to be good at the task, pick the higher of those dice. If you're saying he's going to be bad at the task, pick the lower of the dice. If it's none of those, pick that middle die. And that becomes your effective rank in that skill. So if you roll a four, four is a lieutenant commander. So you're effectively a lieutenant commander Vulcan loot player. It's actually a liar, not a loot, but whatever. Um, like I said, I'm not married to that. I might take that out of there altogether. I understand. And I think it's kind of an interesting way to establish a skill level. But I think my only the question would be, when would you do it? When the, when the task comes up and you're just like suddenly like, oh, but by the way, or is it something you have to do at character creation? Because I don't love having to do that at character creation because I feel like if you do, then, you know, you might pick a bunch of stuff nobody cares about and you're wasting time, right? <laughs> and if you do yeah. it at the moment it happens, then that could also have its own problems where sudden, suddenly you're adding things. So I guess that would be a, a conversation at the table would be probably how I would handle that personally. My last thing, record on the character sheet for future sessions. Yeah, I envision this happened for some unexplained thing that comes up. And the player says, well, you know, it's in my, it's in my background that, you know, I 
used to play with a Vulcan lyre quartet, you know. But yeah, okay, you know, you, you got a point. And like I said, I'm not really married to it. In that case, I'd probably just say, yeah, okay, you got it. Don't worry about it. Because yeah, I, I like the idea, though, of rolling the dice to put, give yourself a rank, and then once you're locked in, and which is very cool. It's just a simple way to establish a rank in something with that adds a little bit of randomness, which I like, versus just saying, okay, well, if you have a skill, it's this. You know, I, I kind of like the idea that you could be a commander at chess, but only be an ensign, you know, because maybe you're just really good at chess, right? Yeah. All right. Ranged combat. The standard weapon in the game is the Fellowship. By the way, Fellowship is the Federation. Again, don't want to be sued. Phaser is a registered trademark, so it's the Fellowship PPG. And you really must know PPG stands for a pew-pew gun. <laughs> and it has three settings. It has stun. So if you get hit by it when it's on stun, you get your stunned. If it's set to kill, you're dead. If it's set to disintegrate, you're just not there anymore. Different races might have weapons called different things. You know, Klingon Disruptor. Uh, but really, it's the same thing, just with a different name. There's a genre trope that enemy weapons are always set to disintegrate when they shoot random red shirts. But for some weird reason, if they hit a player character, it was set on stun that time. If it is set to kill, because why would a Klingon have a disruptor set to stun? Uh, it somehow just grazes the character and wounds them. Yeah, this is very munchkin but it is a genre trope, and darn it, I am going with it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that actually makes sense. I, again, you're playing that kind of game, right? The uh, If you think about the tropes, then that would make sense, right? More likely they're going to get wounded or knocked out and captured. That's more interesting than, oh, your character's dead, you know, especially in a game like yeah. this. Or or your character's disintegrated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hard to come back from that, but we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, and on the whole GNS, you know, gamer narrative simulationist thing, this is really, really heavy on the, the narration, on the uh, simulation side. The only thing it's simulating is not reality. It's simulating the, uh, the fiction. It's simulating the shows. <laughs> yeah, throw reality out the window. Uh, there's another genre trope that no matter what the laws of physics say, if you run across a fearsome-looking alien monster and you shoot it with your PBG, it's probably just going to shake it off and come towards you anyway. Right. You know it's true. <laughs> the salt vampire, uh, all of them, really. The way all this works, again, all you're doing is you're assigning an effective rank to your opponent. Again, it's easy if it's a Klingon or something, you say he's a Klingon ensign. But if it's a monster, you just say it's an ensign-level monster or it's a lieutenant-level monster and all that stuff. So you just roll your redshirt security skill. I never wrote it down here, but I would never roll less than one die for this one. Uh, if you win, you hit the enemy, and your enemy is stunned, killed, or disintegrated, depending on what your weapon is set for. If you lose, then you dodged and you took cover. Or you, you got hit. Well, one of the two. And the caveat there is you can only dodge a number of times equal to your rank number. This is why captains never get hit, and those little Ensign Richards always get hit. If you shoot it, so, yeah, we don't really have hit dice, but we do have rank. It's almost acting the same. And um, I worded it that way because this is not a death spiral. If you get hit, you're not reducing your rank by one. It's just that's the number of times you can get hit. Mm -hmm. 
If you shoot an unarmed foe, it's the same sequence, but instead of them hitting you, if you lose, they, they manage to run away or they manage to close in close enough to attack you with their hand-to-hand uh, combat, which is our next topic, which is hand-to-hand combat. I almost called it hand-to-tentacle combat. And really, there's nothing to say about it. It's the same exact procedure, except you're punching each other. And when one of you is out of ranks, and actually, you never worry about the enemy ranks. They just, as soon as you manage to hit them, they're gone. Again, that matches the show. Yeah, it's the same. It's just, you know, when you get defeated, you're either captured, they got a drop on you, they have you surrounded with guns, so you know, okay, I have to give up, or they knocked you out, whatever. So even if you were fighting like an enemy commander, you just had it once? Or would that be like an NPC? Would be different than yeah, that. A, ma- a major NPC, I would I would give him uh, a couple of hits. I still, I wouldn't make it the full five. That would that would just take too long, first of all. And then that's how I would do it. You can do anything you want. You're at table. No, no, I mean, actually, in, in, in one of the games I created, that's exactly how I do it. Like, basically, the player character has multiple hits to to take them down in my more heroic game. But all, all enemies, no matter what they are, go down when you hit them once. They're just harder to hit if they're tougher. That's how I did it. Um, yeah, actually that would, that's, that's almost the same mechanic here, right? Cause the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I would maybe give a major, a major NPC two or three at most, maybe. And again, it depends if there's like a couple people teaming up on them, definitely. But if it's just one-on-one, maybe not, you know, it, it would have to go with the feel of the game. Makes sense. Injuries and healing. So there's no hit points, as I just said, you're either hopping around or you're defeated. Uh, so if you get defeated or if a cave collapses on you or something, you are uh, usually unconscious. It's it's one of those genre tropes. But you will either revive in time, usually in a cell or something, and then you can come up with an escape method. Or if there is a blue shirt person around, a uh, blue shirt medic, they can revive you and that will either completely heal you, heal you or it will store you to a lower effective rank. That is kind of a death spiral there now. But we just go with whatever's more dramatic, right? If we have a while to go in the game and it would be interesting to see them perform at that lower level because, you know, they have this injury, you do that. If we're right at the big climax and you don't think they could win at that lower effective rank, well, they're perfectly okay then. I know, it's very hand-wavy. It's not crunchy. It's not supposed to be this as a narrative game. Mm-hmm. I can see some people, some people not liking that, though. Yeah, definitely. I think that when you're playing a certain kind of game, you have to embrace what it is, right? And in this case, it's it's like more of a heroic game. You you are playing for the genre, and you're not going to be like, well, you know, Kirk got beat up, so now he can't fight that enemy. No, of course not. Somehow he gets the energy together and and can beat you know the person that you know nobody else could, even though he's all cut up and his shirt's torn, oh. and you know he's he's all for some reason he's all oily. You know. Oh. I need to add that in there. Oh, definitely. You you will see when we get to the ship combat how I would add in a torn shirt. Yeah. Or, you know, McCoy gives him a shot of triox to uh, give him strength in this different atmosphere. And uh, all of a sudden he's good as new. And then he drops dead two scenes later because, never mind, a mock time is the episode I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you refer to Star Trek episodes by name, you watch too much Star Trek. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, so there is another genre trope, which is that major characters almost always return from the dead. So if you die, 
don't worry about it. And possible methods, I just list some uh, temporal shenanigans. Oh, we went back in time and pulled you out from another time or from an alternate dimension. Same type thing. Maybe some weird alien nanoprobes go in your body and fix everything. Alien mysticism. I'm looking at you, Star Trek Search for Spock. Transporter copies, protomatter, that's also Search for Spock. And omnipotent aliens that just come and say, boof, you're alive. Maybe you want to call them Q. Maybe you want to call them other things, whatever. But it's a genre trope. Dead characters don't stay dead. Right. So I don't know, I mean, how, how often would that happen? But I guess if in a large scene, your character gets taken out, let's say in a big epic battle, and then two months later, you want to, or whatever, two weeks later, you want to play the game again you might not want to make a new character. So I guess coming back does make sense. And you can always narrate what happened and just start again. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So uh, ship to ship combat. All right. So I have three approaches for this, which is one is story-based, one is abstract, and one, let's just call it enhanced abstract. I need a better name for that. But pretty much story-based, we're going to use no dice. Abstract, we're just going to make one roll per turn and an enhanced abstract multiple names, uh, multiple roles. Again, we have another genre trope here, and that is whenever a ship is defeated, it explodes. Unless, of course, the players are on that ship, or um, the narrative story requires that ship to be merely disabled. Like, you know, the MacGuffin is on that ship, and we need to grab it. It's just one of those things. If you don't need it anymore, the ship explodes, and it's not there. Uh, What I'm really liking about this is all the, like, genre tropes. Like, I I like that you're (laughs) inserting them, because I think that's important in a game like this. Like, people can understand what you're going for, right? If you just made a rule set and you left that out, people might start, you know, having this thing like, well, why does a ship blow up? But, you know, it blows up because it's a genre trope. It it is what it is. It blows up because our special effects budget does not allow us to have a ruined derelict just floating (laughs) around in space for the rest of the episode. Right. (laughs) Um, Ships, just like characters have a rank and the ships are like a freighter or shuttle which is rank one a scout which is rank two a frigate escort which is rank three a destroyer would be rank four a cruiser would be rank five a battleship would be rank six i will point out that the enterprise of fame ncc 1701 was a heavy cruiser pretty much just your rank plus one is the number of dice they roll that's the little bit of plus for the players that i talked about uh, and they have varying amounts of shields. The bigger the ship, the stronger the shields. Ship subtypes, like I just said, um, the Enterprise was a heavy cruiser. Ships are often called like a heavy cruiser or a light frigate or something like that. So whenever, because we're going to do this, it's going to be the same type of thing. We're going to compare the ships. And we're just going to ignore that first word. If it's a heavy cruiser, it's really just a cruiser. Uh, but if they're two ships of the same type-ish, if you have a heavy cruiser versus a cruiser, Treat the other ship as, so let's say we're playing on the Enterprise, so we're the heavy cruiser and we're fighting just a cruiser. Treat that as one level lower. So treat that one as a frigate. No, as destroyer, sorry. Treat that one as a destroyer because it's weird to keep changing the player's ship. If, on the other hand, uh, we're playing not an Enterprise, we're playing on the other ship and we're hit going against a heavy destroyer, uh, treat that heavy destroyer as a battleship. But other than that, ignore the number, uh, ignore the, the modifier. And uh, a lot of people like to talk about the Dreadnought. It showed up in the Star Trek uh, Starfleet Technical Manual way back in the day. 
It was just some design sketches this guy made of different types of ships. It had a third. It was the Enterprise with a third nacelle coming off the saucer section. Anyway, that's just a fancy name for a heavy battleship, uh, and a battle cruiser is just really a light battleship. And if you're using source books, I say here be careful because depending on what book you look at, the same ship might have different classifications. I'm thinking specifically of the Hermes class, which in one is called a frigate, and then another one is called a destroyer. So just try to stick to the same source book. Uh, but so story-based, the story-based ship-to-ship combat is, um, it's story-based. So imagine you're playing D&D and the players are at a volcano and it's getting ready to erupt or whatever. You don't have volcano eruption rules. You just make it up. You say, okay, the ground shakes as you try to do this. Or you say, right, it's background. It's there for flavor. It's there for to enhance the scene, do it the same way. You're not going to roll any dice. You're just going to use things to, to add tension. You know, if the players have to fix the warp core so they can get out of there and they're being pummeled, just say, you know, the, the ship shakes and all that fun stuff. Does that make sense? 100%. And I could totally see, going back to our original talk about the uh, extended task of, like, fixing whatever, the warp core, right? That The battle, a narrative battle could be going on while that's happening, right? Yes. You're just kind of describing the, the thing, uh, you know, this is happening. The only thing I would say about this is if your players are bridge crew, as opposed to other parts of the ship, uh, I probably wouldn't use this method because at this point, they're just a spectator. You know, there's combat happening, but you, you don't do anything. I'm just going to tell you everything that's happening. That's like saying you're in a fist fight, but yeah, I'm not going to let you make any rules. I'm not going to let you say what's happening. I'm just going to tell you what's happening to you. And I, nobody wants that gaming experience. So if the crew, if the players are bridge crew, don't use this method. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I, I like I could totally see again they're not bridge crew and they're doing something in the ship. If you didn't use this method, then you're basically playing against yourself, which you really can't do because you're not rolling any dice. I imagine like a a D and D like a DM like having two NPCs fight while the players watch. Right? That's not interesting. You'd rather just describe it. So yeah, it, obviously it's it depends on the situation, which makes it. I like having this as an option. So the next method is the abstract method. This is the quick abstract. Maybe I'd call that and the other one just normal. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's quick and easy. The point though, though, the point though, though, the point is if you're going to start whipping out rules for combat, there's no point in doing that if you're not willing to let the ship be defeated. If you're not willing to let the ship be defeated, maybe you should just say, okay, there's a combat happening and not whip out the dice. Other than that, though, there's no rule, there's no maps, there's no anything like that. Again, I wouldn't use this one if players are part of the bridge crew. This is just you want that chance of the ship being defeated instead of saying you have five turns to fix the warp drive. You want that variable thing and you want to keep track of how the ship is doing in combat while they're trying to fix the warp drive. That's kind of when I would use this set of rule. Or maybe if they're down on the planet and they're trying to get back to the ship before the ship goes somewhere, maybe I would use this rule for that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the same mechanic as anything else. And I know Daniel doesn't like same mechanic games. Too bad, this is my game. I do. <laughs> but yeah, you just treat the ship's class as its rank and you count the number of successes. Uh, of course, successes explode just like before. And you just, you're trying to beat the other ship's rank. And if you do actually meet your beat, if you do, then you win that round and their shields are reduced by one or once their shields are gone, their next hit will kill them because, you know, kill, you know, 
defeat them. But if you're if you your side loses the role, well, first of all, your shields are reduced. Once your shields are gone, just start reducing the rank, and then when the rank hits zero, the ship is defeated. Like I said, it's quick, it's easy, it's meant to be more story-ish than hardcore tabletop tactical. Yeah, simple enough. I mean, again, it's I, I could totally see a scene where the player characters are on the planet, let's say, trying to get somewhere. And maybe other player characters, I don't know how spread out you'd want to be, but they could be on the ship trying to fix the transporter, right? And then there's also a battle going on. You could definitely have all this stuff happening. And if the battle isn't, let's say, nobody's on the bridge to, to fight the battle, then you just do this abstract, right? Because you could just have it going on. But who rolls the dice that just anybody at the table picks? Yeah, if I were doing it as GM, I would do round robin. I'd start with whoever's on my left and have him roll the die. And then next turn, you know, who's ever on their left, and I would just go around like that. Yeah, I think it makes the players feel more engaged when they get to roll the dice. And it leads to those uh, around the table in jokes like, oh, no, uh, Tim has the dice. Every time Tim rolls, he rolls low. We're screwed. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the slightly less abstract, maybe that's a name for it, the slightly less abstract ship to ship combat. Um, again, you must be willing to let the ship be defeated. The point of this one is that bridging engineering crews have a purpose. Um, Game-wise, mechanic-wise, pretty much is the same process except every crew member that has a bridge-type role, or if you have engineering people that have a damage control-type role, R-O-L-E, on the ship, uh, they get to make roles that affect uh, the overall role. And the other thing is, instead of reducing the rank, uh, there's a table we roll on when you get hit, which may or may not reduce your rank, which we'll take a look at that table in just a second. So first of all, the crew roles, if you are in a command role, and like I said, you wouldn't be the captain, but maybe uh, you were all on a shuttlecraft and someone has is going to assume the command role for that combat. So they get to make their command role uh, versus whoever's shooting at them, their command role. Uh, and if you make it uh, for this round, you have a plus one to your ship's rank. Communications, if you have one, they might want to jam enemy communications. I don't see that happening a lot, but who knows, maybe. Engineering, if your ship has taken damage, uh, an engineering role will fix that damage. Helm, you know, your pilot, their target number is the rank of the enemy ship's uh, weapons officer. And if you make that role, even if you lose that round, uh, you will not take any damage. Hmm. Uh, maybe it would actually make more sense to make that role after the other role, uh, sort of a savings throw. Uh, medical doesn't come into play. Uh, science. Uh, science is able to scan the enemy ship and so you know how they're doing. And maybe that would even give you a plus one to hit. I haven't thought about that until just now. I will kind of think about that. Uh, ship's weapon, if they make their roll well, plus one hit to the enemy, that means you, even if you miss, you will hit them. Or if you hit them, you will hit them twice. And security don't have a job. And this is the system's uh, damage table. There's 14 items on it. My thought is you roll a D6 and a D8, and I haven't ordered them for that yet. Things happen based on what gets hit. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but like if life support gets hit, everybody dies unless it gets repaired in an hour. If your sensors get hit, you have a negative one rank because you can't, quote, see what's happening. Stuff like that. Makes sense. That happens every time you're hit or uh, or it. Yeah, well, after your shields are down. After the shields are down. 
yeah, if you have three shields, you take three hits and then you start rolling on this damage. Now, you wanted to truly emulate the show. I just can't figure out how to word this. Your first hit is always on your shields. Your second hit would actually be on this table. Then you then you start going back to the shields. But I don't know. Sounds complicated. But that's how the show usually feels, right? The second hit, they usually say impulse engines are down or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was like the shields are weak. So part of the uh, attack is getting through it or something. Yes. Yeah, I, so. yeah, I don't disagree about that. I think that's not a bad way to do it. Yeah, I'm just not sure how I would word that without taking a whole paragraph to describe that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, all right. This is what I call the dramatic art of command. It is a genre trope that in the midst of combat that the captain or another bridge crew member stands up and they strike this dramatic pose or they're standing on the console and they get this dramatic expression on their face and they say one of these phrases. So during combat, if you're playing with the extended uh, abstract method and you are in the appropriate crew position, you can say one of these <laughs> commit one of these things and it will have an effect. You can say emergency power to shields. That's the captain saying that, of course, of course, first officer could do, it, I guess. Um, and that's that just automatically restores one destroyed shield level just because you said that. But like I said, you can only say it once per combat. Say, target their weapons or their engines or their phaser. Well, that would be their weapons, whatever. And if you win that turn, that part of their enemy is destroyed. But like I said, you can only say it once. And if you didn't win, that what did happen. Hail them, then that lets the captain engage them in uh, ponderous dialogue for a full turn, which stops them from shooting. And it gives your damage control turn uh, team a free turn to repair stuff. Evasive maneuvers or attack pattern and then some Greek letter and a number Omicron three, whatever. And that will raise your effective rank for the ship by a one for this combat turn only. BBR. Oh, I didn't talk about BBRs. So ships have two weapons. They have PBGs, which are still pew pew guns, and they have BBRs, which are boom boom rockets. Again, photon torpedo is a registered trademark of Paramount. So uh, we can't say that. So BBRs, full spread. Um, and really... If you ever watch the show and try to figure out which ones do what, why you would use one versus the other, it's it's whatever the writer felt sounded more dramatic at the moment. There is no logic behind it to that. Some of the games have just taken it to mean, taken it? It's a new word. Anyway, have taken it to mean that you use phasers to knock down shields. And once the shields are gone, that's when you start laying in with the torpedoes to do major damage. But again, watch the show, which whatever sounds the best. Anyway, if you say BBR is full spread, uh, that will, if you're fighting multiple ships, you can hit more than one, or it will give you a plus one uh, to the uh, roll. Uh, brace for impact. They say that a lot. Uh, negates damage for that turn, uh, but it's automatically going to make one roll on the damage table. Uh, we've lost shields, Captain. That's one that the Captain wouldn't say, but someone would. Uh, that's when, you know, things are going to get serious. Uh, everyone gets hyper-focused for that turn, and everyone gets a plus one on their rolls for that turn. Damage report, Captain or First Officer usually says that, and that will actually give the damage control teams two turns, uh, two rolls that round. Another one they say a lot is hull breach. I just can't think of anything cool to happen if you say hull breach. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I, say, I said earlier, I, I like the, the playing into it. You know, it, it's why not, right? I love the, uh, you say these things and then, the, and I like that you, you, there is some strategy, I'm sure, to it of, of when you might say different things depending on, you know, like, yeah. uh, like, like you're one away from the shields going down or they just go down and then you want to be, that's when the captain wants to hail them so they can get a couple, you know, uh, turns of repair, you know, as they uh, speak ponderously. Yes. So, 
Yeah. So yeah, it's again, it's all very narrative. Not so. I think it was you once that asked me, uh, "What do you mean by narrative versus tactical play?" I, I think <laughs> whatever answer I gave then was probably okay, but I think having gone through this, you know now know exactly what I mean. Yeah. No, this is exactly how I, li I like to do combats and stuff. This is very, very much along the lines of how I like to play. Yeah, this is narrative play. When you whip out miniatures and rulers and stuff like that, that becomes very tactical and tactical in the terms of that the players need to be good at tactical decisions in order to succeed versus their characters. And uh, like I said, not my style of play. All right, so that was a Starship Combat. Again, leaning heavily into the tropes. Character advancement. Again, if you do want to play it as an ongoing campaign, I do have rules for character advancement. And I call it the fame and shame system. Basically, at the end of a mission, the GM says, did your actions reflect the principles of the Star Flotilla in the Fellowship? In other words, the Starfleet and the Federation. If not, if you decided to solve something, you know, with mass genocide or something, you get a shame point. Shame on you. Shame. On the other hand, if you didn't, then we get to ask another question, which is, was the mission a significant accomplishment for your rank? Did you, as an ensign, solve some mystery and save this planet? Actually, that's significant for any rank. Then yes, then you get a fame point. And like I said, if you got a shame point, you can't get a fame point. And that's how you get shame and fame. So to get promoted, you just need a certain number of fame points more so than your shame points. That's it. Uh, so to make junior lieutenant, you only need two times more fame than shame. For lieutenant, it's five times. You know, it goes up from there. Does it constantly track so that you could actually go down in rank? Yes and no. It does track. I would say that would be a narrative decision. But even if you go down in rank on the show, you wouldn't go down in effective rank as a character. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. Okay. Your, your skills would still be based on that higher rank. In Voyager, right. Tom Paris is continuously promoted and demoted and re-promoted. No, that makes sense. Skill doesn't get any less just because you were demoted. It's just that you don't have the, the, the rank in, in the actual command. Exactly. All right. And then as appendix, I put in non-human characters because people are going to ask. The Fellowship is comprised of many non-human species. And if you're going to do that, it's kind of like what I talked about before um, for Lucky 7. But we have a different mechanism. We just call them ability points. And anytime you want to use an alien ability, you just use one of those alien points. And if it's something that requires a roll, that will let you add a die to the die pool. Uh, and I suppose you could add all three of your ones. And likewise, if your character has, because of their race, they have uh, something that would cause them troubles on a certain type of role or situation. They can get backing ability point for that. Easy peasy. Uh, I have an example here that uh, Ensign Spovak is a Sethlin engineer. Sethlins are known to be highly intelligent, have no emotions and being stronger than humans, and they have a third eyelid. That might sound like something you know. Oh, and they're mildly psychic and whatever else, 50 years of Doex Machina have given them. Uh, while exploring a derelict ancient starship, uh, Spovak needs to bypass a hatch's lock mechanism. GM decides that it's a lieutenant-level security task. Player asks if his intellect would give him an advantage. And yeah, sure, why not? So he's going to pay one of his ability points. And he gets to roll two dice instead of one. 
Uh, later on, he encounters an injured, a injured alien and tries to negotiate with it. But uh, because he lacks empathy, that causes the alien to react negatively. So he will roll one less die, but he'll get an ability score back. Uh, if Spovok sounds like Spock, that is purely coincidental. And if Sethlins was the Istrusian god of the underworld and forge, much like Hermes was it for the Greek and Vulcan was it for the Romans, that's all just coincidence. I buy that. <laughs> um, and this is just me getting on the soapbox for a second. I've made no secret on this show in the past that I am not a fan of non-human characters. And uh, I'm going to double down on that for this game. And here is my argument. The heart of the original series is the idea that humanity, united and free from the shackles of division, can triumph over any adversity. Although alien characters can enrich the narrative, they also dilute the central theme by tempting players to solve problems using alien abilities rather than embracing the inherent strengths of humanity. To preserve the essence of the show's core message, limiting players to human characters is a compelling choice. Alternatively, if non-human characters are permitted, restricting their number to a single player per party would help maintain the focus on humanity's inherent potential. From an in-universe perspective, this limitation aligns with the early days of the Federation where Spock was the sole Vulcan on an Earth ship. Just as the United Nations Task Force is comprises of units from different nations, Starfleet missions typically involve ships accrued entirely by a single species, reflecting the diversity of the Federation's member worlds. End of soapbox. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I agree. I think the game is about exploration, and if, if you had a bunch of aliens on the ship then aliens become less aliens, generally speaking. I mean, obviously, it depends on the game you're playing, but if you're trying to emulate a certain type of show, very specifically Star Trek here, I I, I think you're right. I don't think I'd want to play a bunch of uh, alien races. I think that it makes more sense to play humans. Yeah, if you, like, if you have one, and the point of that character is actually to show the humanity of the others, I'm okay with it. And, but... What, but once you start doing that, a lot of players, okay, I want to play a Vulcan. I want to pay, play a, a Caitlyn. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the animated series, but Lieutenant Mares was a, a Cation. Um, she was, uh, she was oh, a, a, a cat girl. <laughs> um, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and you end up a party with no humans. And I, I just feel so not Star Trek. Not original series, at least. Right. No, that makes sense. And Next Generation has a, a, a Klingon, right? And also an android? Uh, has a Klingon, an android, and a, be a Betazoid. Um, but the Betazoid is, that's uh, Lieutenant, uh, I mean, that's uh, Deanna Troy. Um, she is effectively human, except every so often she so says, I sense strong emotions. He is lying, or whatever, right? Because she's an empath. Um Worf is effectively just a big, angry human. That's that's really it. And uh, Data wants to be human because he realizes his uh, weaknesses. So that's the game that went on far longer than I had hoped. Uh, I hope I didn't lose everybody. Uh, like I said, it's very, very narrative in focus. It's meant to encapsulate the feeling of the original series and to have fun with it in a very beer and pretzels, rules light type way. That seems like it'd be really fun to play. I, I, I like it. 
And I think when you're playing games that are again barren pretzels or maybe not meant to be played weekly in a, a stretching campaign, uh, you know, having just one simple mechanic is fine. I mean, I don't, I'm not opposed to games that only have one mechanic. I just don't love them as my main. I think it's easy, you know, to to translate the mechanic across into different uh, things. And if you're taking somebody who's sitting down for the first time and you're going to have them play the game, you don't have to really explain anything. You can just explain one thing and they, they've got it. So I think when you're making a game like that, it's good to keep it as simple as possible. Thank you. I hope that people liked it. I imagine some people don't and some people do. Actually, I'm hoping on that some people that do. I know some people won't because human nature, not everybody likes the same thing. We are attracted to different experiences and play and that's dandy, right? So, uh, but I, I hope someone does. I, I feel very self-conscious presenting it here. You know, normally when you're doing writing, you, you, you know, at least uh, <laughs> you, you're not getting that immediate feedback. And uh, yeah, I think you know what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I like it. I like, I could totally see sitting down, let's say in between games at a convention or just on the weekend or at lunch break at a work, if you work to people, it'd be like, hey, you want to play a quick game and just... Uh, whipping up a character and just having a quick little adventure, it seems like it wouldn't be, like you probably could have the rules in your head, you know, and be able to just run the game very simply, which which is a strong part of, or strong point for games that are are kind of that kind of game, you know, Baron Pretzel's kind of uh, fun games like that. Yeah, really probably the, the only references you would need is like a two-sided sheet, you know, showing the ranks and their rank number and their ships and their ship number. And... um then maybe the um, the dramatic expressions during combat and the damage table, the ship to ship uh, damage table. And yeah, and see, so after that dramatic thing, uh, that's like makes me now want to say, okay, my sh my shirt is ripped, and they get a bonus for of some sort for that, but uh, for for the hand hand combat because that's totally in the. Did you see um, Galaxy Quest? I did see Galaxy a long time ago, but yes, I did yes, see it. Tim Allen, Scorny Weaver. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I love on what, yeah, well, I've, there's nothing to hate on that. One of the things I love on that, though, is that what's his name's character? The guy from Harry Potter and everything that died. Dang it. Sucking with names today. But anyway, when they're watching Tim Allen's combat on the planet against the rock monster, they're like, he lost his shirt. He always loses his shirt. And I was like, yeah, that was hilarious. All right. Anyway, uh, this show is going on long. Uh, my question to my audience is, should I bother to write this up uh, for people to download? It's that simple. Right now exists as a more or less a PowerPoint slide deck. It's actually Keynote because I wrote this on my Mac. But should I write this as a download? That's my question. Hi, everyone. I'm back. That that was it. You know, everything else was, you know, you heard it in last week's episode. So again, I would like to thank Daniel for joining me for that. Uh, like it was a two hour recording session. So he's really a trooper. Thanks a lot, Daniel. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to wish you a very happy 2024. Hopefully uh, for the first episode of the new year. It will be that bonus episode. Valerie and I will be able to sit down and talk about those movies. But until then, Happy New Year's. Enjoy the celebration. Celebrate responsibly. And I hope to see you on the next side. And until next year, happy gaming. Happy life. Bye. You have been listening to the Decahedron RPG Podcast. Send email to feedback at decahedron.com. 
remember to spell decahedron with a K. Voice feedback can be sent through the Anchor website or by calling 562-RPG-CAST. That's 562-774-2278. Links are in the show notes. Music is by Kevin McLeod and Alexander Nakarada. Logo is by Design Cat. Thanks for listening.